think one of the fundamental insights that I've come up with, or I believe now, we need to spend more time writing and reading and less time in meetings and talking. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Stowe Boyd. Stowe has been studying work and the tools we use to adapt to the future for the past three decades. He is the chief scientist of research group Work Futures, with his many former roles, including head of research at GigaOM. You can find more on his work at Stoboyd, that S-T-O-W-E-B-O-Y-D.com, and workfutures.io. In this episode, you will learn about Obsidian and uh, Stowe's version of that, Taskidian, learning loops, work management, reasoning by analogy, openness to ambiguity, sedimentary thinking, and far more. So keep listening to learn from Stowe's great insights. So it's wonderful to have you on the show. Nice to see you again, actually. It's been a while. It has been a very long time now. So you, I think it's fair to say, thrive and overload. You make sense of the world, sense of the world of work and where that's going amongst many, many other things. What's the starting point for you in being able to make sense of this incredible world of information that we live in? I guess the start, in a way, was the transition from the old world onto the internet. I got involved with that relatively early and embraced all that that entails, you know, the good and the bad. But, you know, I started blogging in 1999, you know, it was a long time ago. And around the same time, I got really interested in the transition to collaboration technologies, as most people call them. I use different terms, but, and I followed that very avidly for, you know, the last 20 years, honestly. And that really was the grounding of everything that came later. So from that, I got interested in work, you know, what people are actually doing, aside from just the technologies that they they use to do it. That's basically the the background. So why don't we start from almost like the the tactical and and sort of build out into sort of the macro of what you do. How do you choose your information sources? Where does your your sensing of the world start? What are your sources? What times of day do you do that? How do you come across the things that feed your mind? Yeah, well, I've always been a, a real fan of the, you know, following people model. Uh, I once said that the most important decision in a connected world is who you choose to follow. That's a lot of it. It's there's specific people, you know, hundreds of them out there that I think highly of and are good sources. And so I try to follow them. In, in whatever mechanism that comes, newsletters now is very common. 
you know, also, and before that, you know, things like Twitter and Tumblr and Medium, all those kinds of sources. That's that's it principally. That and, of course, you know, certain journals, periodicals that I think are important. You know, so, you know, MIT's Technology Review, for example, or the New York Times, real obvious things. And I'm pretty avid about keeping up with those sources. And, you know, I have a, a deluge of newsletters coming to me all the time these days. So having following these people, finding these sources, how do you pull out what is relevant? You know, something which is you do need to capture or to do something with, you know, how do you identify what it is and what do you do with that to pull that into your framework of thinking? Well, I think, I think I'll operate sort of on this Feynman notion, you know, that you have a list of 20 questions or 12 questions, whatever, some number that are important to you. Um, And so you're always on the lookout for information that adds to, clarifies, or debunks uh, things you've already been thinking about. So I, I definitely have that. I've got this list of, you know, topics. And when they reoccur, I'm very interested. I capture it, read it, try to assimilate it. I was doing it this morning before we got on the call. I was reading about this characterization of, you know, the, the two sides of the world, virtuals versus physicals. And people are grounded in those those worlds, and so this is a you know aligns with other discussions that are you know important to me about how does the world work, how how is politics and economics changing, and so so I copied you know two things that I was reading this morning. I put them in my my obsidian vault and highlighted the things I thought were critical. And sometime in the not too distant future, I'll go back and write something and pluck that quote from Christopher Lash and that other thing from N.S. Lyons. And it'll find its way into something that I synthesize and try to help me make sense of the world, but then I'll share it somewhere. So you're using obsidian. Yep. And so I'd love to hear as to why you've chosen to use obsidian and and how specifically you use that to capture and to connect. It's kind of the most recent example of trying to, you know, use and and maintain, you know, a body of information, what I call my workings, right? And you got to keep it somewhere, you know. So in the old days, people would keep a commonplace book and write, you know, on the pages or take clippings from magazines or whatever and glue them in, whatever. In the digital age now, I've tried a whole bunch of other tools and, you know, they all did what they did and they sufficed maybe at various points in my my progression. You know, I have gone through Notion and Evernote and too many to name, actually. And then uh, in recent, the, the last year and a half, I guess, I've been using Obsidian and I really like it because of its flexibility. I mean, the fact that it's extendable, that people have built all kinds of plugins that do all kinds of interesting things that makes it easy to cross-reference and find things. Finding is really critical. So I need like a hundred ways to find things because my memory's flawed and limited, but I can have an infinity of markdown files on my hard drive and I want to be able to go there and say, who was the guy that wrote the book, The Revolt of the Elites? I don't remember. I, I know today because I just put something in there. Six years from now, will, will I remember that? Maybe, but maybe not. And so, But I'll search it and I'll find out. 
So I, I really require, you know, a system and Obsidian is one of many candidates that I am currently invested in, but it's not necessarily the end all be all, who knows? I might move again. Yeah, I'm, I'm using Obsidian as well. And I guess the whole frame of, you know, there's Rome and Rome Research and Obsidian and LogSec and some other sure. similar tools. I do think do think there is a potential for a next generation beyond that. Sure. Oh, yeah. They're evolving very quickly. You know, they're all on their own development paths, but they're all looking at each other and saying, oh, they have that feature. I might, I'll implement that. So, yeah, it's a it's sort of another interesting frontier technology space. Very, very interesting stuff. So you connect some of your, when you take a note, whether that be a, a paragraph or an idea or a link or so on, is there any particular ways in which you are trying to connect that or link that to, to build a, you know, a structure to those notes? Oh yeah, absolutely. I built a, a system inside of Obsidian I call Taskidian, and it's based on some plugins, data view and this query tool, a plugin, and it allows me, you know, I can put metadata associated with tasks and then I can find them later. I can search, I can order them by the metadata values and so on. And uh, I also use extensively Kanban boards inside of Obsidian to sort of, you know, for everything I consider a project, I'm managing the information that way. So that's manual. It relies less on search and, you know, data view kind of metadata. But, you know, because I think in projects, it's, it's very sensible to have an artifact that really reflects the way I think about things too. Not just because someday I might want to be able to find things in an organized fashion. And I have, you know, six Kanban boards like in my side panel and I can just click on it and say, oh, what is the next thing I'm supposed to do? Or who am I waiting for to take the next step in that project? You know, so that that's kind of critical. So, so you have a, a mathematical background. And so I think that is one of the ways in which we have uh, overlapped in thinking about social network analysis. And I think, you know, some related fields, you know, you mentioned around set theory and so on. So how do those kinds of frameworks inform how you think or how you find information or how you connect it or how you find that again? Well, you know, there's fundamentally two kinds of math. There's discrete math and then there's, you know, calculus and in that kind of uh, approach. And, and then there are different tools, different ways of thinking about the world. You know, and I studied both, but my real background is, you know, computer science. So it's set theory and you know, lambda calculus, recursion, all those kinds of things. And so those things fundamentally structured my brain to think about things in different ways than I thought before I learned them clearly. Um, and so that means that when I like look at something, I have a tendency to use those kind of tools to try to make sense of it. And then I learned all about social network theory, you know, so the, the concepts of that and social network analysis obviously frames a lot of my thinking about how people interact in social groups and so on. And, you know, that's 85% of what goes on in thinking about work, the workplace. Um, the other 15% is technology, you know, and how that's influencing it and the influence of external factors like the economic sphere in which businesses operate and so on. But so those tools are absolutely central to what I think about. And, and I use those models as ways to structure, you know, framework things and help explain it to people. Because, you know, a lot of my work is explanatory 
in, in its nature. You know, I'm sort of trying to teach things, you know, drawing correlations between things and sharing them with people. Say, hey, you should really think about this this way as opposed to some other way. So, you know, the correlations or then the relationships between ideas. And so I asked you the question before we spoke on around surfacing relationships. You know, where, where are the connections? How do you identify them? And I think, you know, you made some interesting points around the analogies or how it is, I suppose, cognitively, you are making the connections between things, which, you know, to a, to a fair degree, I suppose, is it's connecting the dots in ways that other people wouldn't. You know, well, what is your thinking structures that enable you to make these connections? Well, here's, here's a good anecdote. I was working on a panel session uh, recently all virtual actually was was kind of interesting. I came up with an analogy during the talk while I was actually moderating this panel, which was a similarity between people's reluctance to retreat from rising sea levels, you know, along the coastlines, and instead their their natural tendency to rebuild over and over again, which is going to be fruitless because the problem is just getting worse all the time. And I I made the analogy from that to how companies continue to invest in building teams as a central part of how to manage work and how to organize people in businesses, even though all the evidence shows that mostly companies don't get the return on investment from teams, that they're not a great way necessarily to organize the totality of work. But we will continue to reinvest in teams because people want them to work, right? <laughs> Despite the evidence that it's uh, not necessarily the best way to organize things. There, there are real similarities there, but therefore, how would you take evidence from the world of retreating from the coastlines and apply it in the business context? Maybe it's only the analogy that is applicable, but maybe not. Maybe there are actual techniques that could be applied. And so that's how reasoning by analogy can actually, you know, lend itself to insights. New ideas come from that. Or maybe it's just a wisecrack. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's the thing where, where all analogies have some points where they uh, they can be mapped against each other and others where they can't. And I suppose you always need to distinguish. Uh, you can make an analogy which is strong and useful and relevant, but you've got to be able to discern where the analogy applies and where it doesn't apply. Right. Because it is an analogous, not not a complete mapping. Yeah. So I suppose there's, there's always the danger as well as the value with when you, when you introduce the analogy. Right. And, you know, in the two cases in this particular instance, so now people are talking about unteams, right? Actually organizing things that are looser, where you do less team development, that people don't have a sense that they are going to be working in close contact with this specific group of people over a long period of time. And so that drops out a whole bunch of politicking that goes on in team formation, you know, the, the storm norm model. You can just drop that out. And, and if you, you know, so swift trust is something that's been well-researched. And so there is a whole body of things that arise from this. If, if uh, you know, I haven't gotten around to writing much about it yet, actually, because it just occurred like two weeks ago. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, 
guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So, so that actually brings me to another really interesting point, something which I'm thinking about a lot. So I've been looking at these ideas of thriving on overload as an individual perspective, right? As individuals who process information and make sense of it, hopefully you can make better decisions. But how do we map that then onto a team perspective, where as a team, we are collaborating to make sense, filter information, create things. So in looking at the future of work and your structures, I mean, do you have any directions or thoughts around how it is we can collaboratively engage in that filtering and perception and sense-making and model-making? Well, yeah, I think I think uh, there's a couple of observations. One is that each individual, to whatever extent it's possible, needs to invest themselves into a process, doing it individually, you know. It's like I said about all social tools start with social equals me first. You know, you got to get the thing working right for the individual and then scale it up from there. I think one of the fundamental insights that I've come up with, or I believe now, it's a belief, is that uh, we need to spend more time writing and reading and less time in meetings and talking. I'm still a believer in talking. (laughs) It's just that we um, have given it too much of a priority in the business context in group interactions. And so I like the idea uh, and all the research uh, is it's fascinating about the value of asynchronous communication mechanisms. Um, they also have a tendency to balance out the differences of people's cognitive styles, you know, uh, whether you're introvert, extrovert, night owl, you know, morning lark, whatever. All of those things get smoothed a lot by sh- shifting to asynchronous, you know, writing as, as a mechanism and away from, you know, face-to-face, real-time, you know, conversation as a foundational notion of how people should interact socially. And so that the benefits of this then accrue to the degree that people can and do invest in that as a, a mechanism for coordinating work, communicating, and so on. I think that's fun, foundational, but it's one of those problems because the fundamental thing behind it is the notion that there's a learning loop going on inside of organizations, and it has to be given primacy. It has to be considered as important as what most people think is the central loop of business, which is producing products or services and delivering them to clients. That's important. you got to do that. But you also have to spend time on this learning loop or else you're failing on any kind of sustainable level for people. And likewise, now, of course, we know that there's a third loop of well-being. We have to figure that out or else, once again, things fall apart. So I think one of the interesting things from what you're saying there, so part of it is obviously writing is a process of actually structuring your own thoughts as well as communicating those to others. It is a way of being able to, in a way, distill and build your mental models. But some of the things which you're saying there, I think also maybe lend themselves to visual representations. So we have words as a way of capturing and distilling and communicating, but also visual representations as a way. And so, you know, loops, for example, are difficult to represent using uh, linear words. So I'd love to just hear about, as a complement to words, the role of visuals in how you think or find those useful or how you see their role in organizations. Yeah, well, in some of the things I've written recently about these very issues, like uh, the series I did in the first half of this year for uh, 
or Cisco at their WebEx Ahead website, if anyone wants to look at it. I use the diagrammatic techniques of loops and show how our loop connects with the loops of our clients or whatever. And so, yeah, I did. I put the graphic in there to make it, you know, so I can have, you know, I saved a thousand words by showing the picture. Um, I think that's critical. The, the same is true of, you know, all kinds of other models. I've shared with you in the the, the notion of my adjacency matrix kind of model of thinking about competitive structures, con- competitive forces inside of markets like the marketplace for work technologies. You know, there are all these overlapping circles and you can actually show how people move from one end of this matrix to another by changing, you know, the functionality of their tools and, and how people are moving from a sector and a, a collection of technologies to others because they offer new and different things. So, for example, the, the the transition away from work management, like task-oriented tools, to things like what we were talking about, uh, Obsidian and other tools for thought, what I call workings, content-centric work management. And uh, there's clearly a movement that people are trying to embed the notion of work management inside of the context of content and sharing that among people and not separating them out as something. That transition is happening based on people deciding it's a better way, some subset of the people thinking it's a better way for them to do things. And will that you know, be a tidal wave that'll sweep the world of business? I don't know. But it's, it's clear that there's a lot of investment of human energy in it, and also a lot of investment of capital is going in there. So Notion is now valued at $10 billion. I mean, that's pretty significant uptick in just a couple of years. So I think it's a fascinating space. Yeah. And, and uh, it represents a change in how people are thinking about thinking about things. That's an unusual thing. <laughs> well, it's... It hasn't been done enough. So John Borthwick of uh, Betaworks a little while ago had a little Twitter thread where he said, you know, somebody the effect of, you know, the thinking tools market is not developed and it needs to be a lot more. It's fragmented. And yes, we do can be helped. We can be helped by tools for thinking. And we do have a bit of a next generation, but this is something where it's, this, this is potentially a, a bit of a wave of new software, new structures, new processes, an individual level, an organizational level, where we can have tools that enable us to think better, make better sense of the world, and, and make better decisions, we would hope. Right. Let's, let's hope so. But at least continue to make decisions and maybe, maybe make the making of decisions easier, not necessarily just better. I mean, it would be great if we could set up systems that would help people collectively organize themselves around decision-making in a better way. Because the way that decisions are made often uh, are actually pretty horrible. (laughs) Well, 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 just, I suppose, adjacent to that, or I suppose informing that, is that uh, space of synthesis. You know, I always believe this is this is vital human capability of being able to see all the pieces across different domains and different frames and pulling those together to make sense, to have a synthesis, to pull these all together. And I'd love to hear any thoughts around how you nurture or support or enable or, you know, go through that process of synthesis and, and uh, 
pulling together into a whole the, all of the disparate things that we see. Well, I guess one of the, the things I've come to appreciate in maybe the last last 10 years is that thinking synthetically requires time. And it's something that I didn't appreciate as much when I was prior to, you know, this last decade anyway. And so it's kind of, it's like a sedimentary process. You know, you have to lay down layers of things over time and think about them incompletely. There's a sort of incompleteness that goes on that you haven't come to the final conclusion. You're not even sure what the conclusion is. You don't know where it's going. Uh, So there is this openness to ambiguity, right? I think that's essential. So you have to accept that you haven't come down on an answer or you don't have the answer. You don't know exactly where it's even headed. So that kind of runs counter to, you know, the go-go quick decision-making is a sign of like leading executives or, you know, that kind of grind culture thinking has a tendency to push us away from uh, the necessity for reflection over time on issues that are, if you will, uh, top level issues, the, the 12 key questions that someone should be pursuing over the course of uh, their life or career or whatever. And so I, I think people just don't give it enough time. They're too, I don't know, abrupt. You know, they're looking for quick answers, quick hits. So for example, I'm working on a committee here in my, my city appointed by the mayor and he chartered us at the very beginning with finding the quick hits. You know, what are the things we can do with the biggest impact for the lowest cost in the shortest period of time? And I'm like, okay, we can also do that. But don't we have to do the other thing too? I mean, how would you know if a thing is shorter term than something that's long term if you don't consider the long term things too? Because how would you even make that, you know, that comparison? So we did that. You know, we did that for the mayor even though we ultimately had to spend an equal amount of time or even more talking about the long-term issues. It, it's in that essential. So, you know, his hope for a, you know, a two-month turnaround of low-hanging fruit, as he called it, meant that we ultimately went on a, a, a course that is now two years long, and we have the matrix of, you know, the low-hanging fruit, short-term, low-cost, easy, all the way to long-term, expensive, biggest impact. You know, we have to do everything. I, I think that's a common situation. And, um, you know, it's inescapable in a way. Yeah, well, I, lo- I love that idea of the sedimentary layers, sort of being able to lay those foundations and, uh, you know, understanding that, appreciating time frame, understanding what time frame you're thinking in for a start is something which is often neglected. Yeah, well, I think of, uh, think of, think of models, once again, something we've been talking about a lot, uh, I think about the pace layers of Stuart Brand, you know, that the, the the world has different layers and the ones at the core at the bottom in his diagram are the ones that are slowest. But the fastest ones, like in his example, fashion is constantly changing at a very high pace, but that impacts, you know, a lower level and there's some friction so that the things that go on in, at, at the fashion level influence the next layer in that causes it to move and so on. But I think thinking about things that way is essential. And, you know, that's the kind of thinking that you don't hear, like in, you know, corporate boardrooms. You know, they think of everything is like quarter to quarter. We've got this project that's going to go an entire 
18 months. It's like, don't you have a five-year time horizon or a, a decade? We're going to be in a decade, in a decade from now, <laughs> you know, it's inevitable. You have to think about it. No, but often it's, it's the opposite. So, and I think that's a, a thing that is difficult. It's a difficulty in the way that we think about time. It is. So just in rounding out, I mean, of course, there's, you know, real richness and depth to, you know, I think what we've just been able to touch the surface on in our conversation. But are there any recommendations any you would give to people, you know, listening to your experience to be able to say, well, how is it that I can make some steps to be better at making sense of, you know, this world of information profusion that we have today? I think people have to dedicate a chunk of time to actively attempting to make sense of the world every day. And that is get out your diary and write all the thoughts you had in your head and didn't have time to synthesize until you woke up this morning or read the things you think are most critical to read and take notes and capture chunks of information that you think are going to be of relevance to you in the future, maybe. And so you have to make that investment. You have to be an active participant in the sedimentary nature of building up knowledge of the world. Otherwise, it won't happen or it'll happen obliquely only indirectly things will happen, but um, you won't have something that you can turn back to and use as a tool if you don't craft it. You know, in my case, for example, I, I, I have the luxury, if you will, to say, I'm not going to take any phone calls in the morning unless it's an emergency. I get up, you know, six o'clock, I'm at my desk and I try to make sure I don't have any phone calls till 11 or after lunch, whatever. <laughs> And obviously, it gets broken up because of travel, you know, client engagements, whatever. But I start with the premise that there is no time slots that you can book when I send you a link to my request a meeting. There are no time slots in the mornings because I want to spend that time reading and writing. At the end of, you know, 20 plus years, it starts to add up. Absolutely. That's really you know, important advice that just simply, that simply there's been able to uh, take the time, take the time to think, take the time to digest, take the time to make sense of it. Yep. So to, I suppose, benefit from the fruits of all of your thinking and distilling and writing. So where should people go? Where can they find your work? There's a couple of places. One is workfutures.io is where I write mostly about work-related issues, you know, and uh, I have an interesting story about that, but it's 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 too long to tell, but basically I got a, a big boost from spending time talking to my readers to help me craft a description of what it's all about, which is really helpful. So if anyone wants to see it, workfutures.io slash about was really informed by a discussion with readers of the of the pub. The other thing is, you know, I'm on Medium. I work the the streams on Twitter every day. So uh, those are the places. And stowboy.com still works although that's mostly like culture things these days. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Stowe. That's been really, really valuable. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. 
If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.